My name is Raj Berry and I'm the President of the Economic Society. It is my pleasure to welcome Professor Edward Prescott to LT tonight. It was not until too long ago that a UK politician, who shall remain nameless, claimed to have ended the boom and bust cycle for good. Clearly amidst perhaps the worst economic crisis in recent history, we are now living in very different times. The series of events following the downfall of Lehman Brothers last September did an unprecedented chapter in economic history. Whether it was economic bailout packages, monetary, monetary policy or quantitative easing, countries around the world took, took expansive steps to stay afloat. This leaves us in a very precarious and interesting position today. Is the worst of the crisis over? Will we now see dissipating unemployment, growing GDP and British stock markets? And most importantly, what changes will we see in economic policy? Today, Edward Prescott will outline his view on the current crisis and whether he thinks there is any light at the end of the tunnel. Edward Prescott is a senior monetary advisor at the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis and the W.P. Carey Chair of Economics in the W.P. Carey School of Business at Arizona State University. Prescott was awarded the 2004 Nobel Prize in Economic Society in economic sciences, together with Finn E. Kidland, for his contributions to dynamic macroeconomics, time consistency of economic policy, and the driving forces behind the business cycle. He is currently a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the Econometric Society. Prescott has also authored more than 100 article, articles and is noted for his contributions <coughs> to the theory of economic development and growth, banking and financial markets, as well as business cycles and tax policy. Prescott earned his bachelor's degree in mathematics at Swarthmore College, his master's of science in operations research at Case Western Reserve University, and his PhD in economics from Carnegie Mellon University. So without further ado, I hand you over to Edward Prescott. Society is in your hands of the educated, informed public opinion. Uh, is that some of you will even be doing research advancing the economic science. I take the view that don't rely on the experts, rely on the informed people for making the decisions. Is there light at the end of the tunnel? These are interesting times. That's good for business. Uh, <coughs> business uh, a lot of great economists, uh, a, lot of, a lot of people get attracted to this field, you know, when there's financial problems, when there's economic problems. And let me tell you a little secret. Uh, faculty members need students more than students need faculty members. <laughs> I learned so much from them and hopefully they learn from me. Okay, what about the current situation? Some good news. The stock market is still undervalued relative to fundamentals.
Um, well, you know, it's a good place to say if you can stand some uh, volatility. Uh, you know, you're saving for retirement. This is so distant to you people. But maybe your parents are, will know about that. It's, uh, and it was a major stock market crash, much bigger in percentage terms than the 1929 one. We had a couple of them this decade. But it's a good place to save the value of the stock market, whether it's the UK or the US. Helen McGrath and I have studied these, these markets. The value of stocks regress back to their fundamental value. <coughs> um, there are going to be big fluctuations. And this volatility question has been open for well, since 1975. Um, I hope it's got somebody comes up with a reason for why the stock market so volatile. Hope that person's me. <laughs> <laughs> but even if it's not, I'll be happy. Um, U.S. productivity has been growing rapidly last quarter. Annualized rate 6.6%. That's a, dividing by four, that's 1.65% more output per unit of inputs. I'm very anxious to hear what the next productivity numbers say. Um, they'll have at the end of this month, third quarter GDP statistics. By the way, productivity is the key determinant of living standard. Of course, England was the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution that was the start of modern economic growth. Um, and over time, there's been this continual increase in living standards. Um, actually, the U.S. caught up and moved a little bit ahead in the six-year period between about 1870 and 1928. But productivity, if you know productivity, you have a pretty good idea of living standards of that country. Taxes also matter for the amount of people work in the market sector. Let's look at the long-run picture. As I said, relatively steady growth. This is a log scale. Straight line is a constant percentage growth. Very, very smooth in the uh, <coughs> post-war period. With more volatility earlier. But some of that may, be, may not have been that volatile as these statistics indicated. Christina Romer, in a brilliant dissertation, uh, measured the output in the post-war period the same way they did it in the early period where you could do it, do it with the data availability. <coughs> There's a bigger set of available data in the post-war. But she just used a smaller set. And, that, and this was significantly more volatile. Of course, you can see the Great Depression. Well, and the World War II output boom. Most of that was military. military. Well, deviations from trend. <coughs> Lost 40 percent. That's a lot. Between 1929 and 1933, 
Recently, the loss has been about 7%, and this has occurred over the last year. 7% um, is a lot smaller than 40%. <laughs> Hopefully, things will turn around. The latest statistics that came in, uh, I saw on Friday, um, found that the fraction of the population 16 years and older, older that are employed, fell significantly. That's a little bit disturbing. But here's deviation from trend, from a little bit over 10% above to a little bit over 30% below. <coughs> this World War II, of course, that was not the greatest of time. Well, that was not high personal consumption, private consumption, or not high, uh, Was it the 10 million troops in Europe and they had to be paid and supplied? And that's not where they wanted to be. Um, how bad are things? Not that bad so far. Contractions. We use the word recession all the time, but it's not an economic concept. And it's not used the same way as it was originally developed by the, uh, I think it was. Wesley Mitchell. Um, <coughs> recession means receding or contracting. Um, <coughs> so in a sense, the economy can, it's not a state of the economy. So the economy can't be in recession or not. <coughs> As it is not a state of the economy. A sensible definition of contraction, any sensible definition must correct for population and trend growth. Living standards double every generation. Uh, with these corrections, a flat line is neither losing nor gaining ground relative to the industrial leader. A flat line means living standards double every generation. Here's a more recent, 1991 through I think this is 1909-1. As you can see, there's fluctuations. Uh, by the way, my proxy for working age population is the number of people age 16 to 64. It's not a perfect proxy, but it seems to work. It's better than just doing per capita. Okay, now, uh, there has been some fluctuations. And it seems like everybody seems to say the latest little fluctuation is the biggest thing that ever happened. But now I'd like to say macroeconomic theory has really become a hard science. The methodology that Kittlin and I developed, and I think that's what we've got to know about prize for, uh, permitted you to construct dynamic equilibrium models and study their properties. The Neo-Keynesian models are all real business cycle models. They put some interesting frictions into the model. Maybe wage rigidities, maybe price, sticky prices, etc. 
uh, staggered wage contracting. <clears throat> now, it seems treating the productivity population and tax rates exogenous predicted the natural paths that aggregate variables coincide. Uh, this is, <coughs> these are what make you an assumption that agents have perfect foresight. They don't. Uh, but it turns out um, to be a fairly innocuous assumption. By the way, you use this methodology, everybody comes up with the same thing. You read the introduction to the paper, it sounds as if uh, everybody's finding something new and different. But if you sort of listen to the model, <coughs> they seem to be all saying the same thing. Same thing. They all find that monetary policy had little consequences in the post-war period. And that the big thing is that uh, labor market, or that wedge, that leave people work too much or too little. Um, I just put black lines in for periods which I thought there was significant declines. I eyeballed this. The big contraction was from the fourth quarter of 1978 to the fourth quarter of 1982. MVR breaks that into two different contractions. Um, I think it's just one big one. There were some credit market controls imposed at this time that broke it down and then relaxed and recovered. Uh, a little noise like that is not a central. So far, this recent one has only been, I'd say about 7% we include the most recent observation. <coughs> but this is 11.2. There's a pretty big one in 73, 74, and there were some nutty economic policies, anti-market policies followed that. By the way, that, that four-year period of contraction, the first tier, two years of it, money was loose. Money was easy. Low real interest rates. You take the federal funds rate and subtract the inflation rate. The negative a few percent, three or four percent. The last two years, with Volcker in action, uh, <coughs> they were high. And they continue to be high even after recovery occurred. Actually, the contraction beginning in the fourth quarter of 1999, or maybe the first quarter of 2000, was bigger than the figures indicated because there was that huge amount of unmeasured investment. Starting up new businesses, the high tech, R&D went right through the ceiling. By the way, R&D is an investment. It's not counted. R&D financed by businesses is an investment. But it's not counted as part of output. It's expensed. And actually that boom of the 90s was significantly bigger than what the statistics indicated. So let's look at expansions. The biggest one was the one in the early 60s. Going to Kennedy here. 
They had some tax cuts back then, but that was, that was minor. The factor was the technology. There were some new things like mainframe computers and I don't even know what they are. Now we have more <coughs> power sitting in our little uh, laptop. Um, this was in the jet airplanes got important and this was technology driven. Uh, and chemicals were very another important development. They made big advances in that. The 1995 to 2000 expansion also was technology driven, and in fact was significantly bigger and longer. And when you go around, uh, everybody was becoming multimillionaires. Not everybody, but a lot of people were. Uh, even a couple of my youngest son's friends, who were only about 25 at the time, did. Um, it was all in the IT sector. We do have direct measures of R&D, so we know that that investment was big. We knew a lot of new products were launched. But this, that was bigger. The second biggest, however, and longest expansion was in the 80s. And that was due to the cuts in the marginal tax rates. The flattening of the schedule. The woman labor force participation rate, married woman, went way up, not single. So I put the black line through the expansion. The first technology driven one, this one's a few percent bigger than this figure indicates. That is what McGrath and I found. Um, here's this tax driven one. Now what's been depressing the economy? I told Ben Bernanke, uh, I can't blame him. <laughs> they created the reserves, and this financial crisis is, had to be some orderly restructuring, and there was. Um, I need to say that there was too much this subprime uh, mortgages trying to get home ownership percent up. It did go up, but you find people only put three and a half percent down to get a house. Some of my, couple of my graduate students uh, did that. They got the nice houses. They lived there, paid almost nothing. Got their PhD, went off to New Zealand, and mailed the keys back to the bank. I don't think the financial crisis directly de depressed the economy. <coughs> the people had access to the uh, funds if they needed it. Everybody said, I had looked at Fumio, Fumio Hayashi and I had looked at the Japan's lost decade of growth. And they always said, oh, it's a lack of funds for small businesses. We found they got the funds. We found that that economy behaved just like theory predicted. Creating productivity is exogenous. I don't think lack of borrowing not a problem. Let's look at total liabilities. This is the consolidated household sector with, with small businesses, consolidated with the household. Partnership, consolidated with the household. 
corporate, non-financial corporation consolidated to the household. So in other words, the capital that non-corporate businesses, non-financial corporations had, got passed back to the uh, household. Um, any debt they had got passed back to the household. As you can see, during 2008, there was a small increase in the total liabilities. The shares stayed pretty much the same. Mortgages are the big thing. Um, by the way, some of this other stuff um, is actually not, I recently learned was really not a debt. That's foreign direct investment in the U.S. gets loaded there. That's treated like a liability. Toyota America, <laughs> or BMW, Germany, America. Um, these numbers all come from the flow of funds. There was some end of a small, at least relative to the one of the 1980s, high-tech building. R&D was high up until 2007. And there was the overbuilding of houses. And, we shut, and then there was the shutting off of immigrants. 2007 and before, it's a million net immigrants a year. 2008, it's down to uh, 100,000. They need lots of houses, but they rent our own. Well, I think sometimes booms are nice. We have good shocks. I prefer not to have the bad ones. Avoiding bad policy shock is a good thing. When I look at the statistics, it all seems to be loaded into investment. There's 25 million small businesses in the U.S. Five million of them have employees. The owners of these businesses feared higher tax rates. They rationally cut investment, rationally cut employment, took more cash out of their business. Why they feared tax rates are going to be high in the future is my is the line that's being explored and seems to be being supported. Workers fearing job loss rationally cut their auto buying. You can get money, you can get daddy or mommy or somebody to get them off them, even if you, they won't. Back in 81, I couldn't get a mortgage and I was a tenured faculty member. And and I, to sell a house in Pittsburgh when I moved to Minneapolis, uh, I had to issue a mortgage to sell that house back in Pittsburgh. And the people that sold the house to me had to issue, they called them certificate for deeds, but they're like uh, mortgages. The tax rates are being increased. These increases lower amount of capital a firm chooses to have. Reasonable investment is not a problem getting loans, it is expected future higher tax rates. What happens after financial crises? This is not the first one. Sometimes bad things, and sometimes good things. 
First comparison. <coughs> Both Finland and Japan had financial crises. <coughs> Japan lost their decade of growth and are still <coughs> about 15% below what they were. Um, Finland, on the other hand, they did come down. You know, the Soviet Union collapsed. And all the banks went bankrupt. They reformed their system. They did fairly dramatic recovery. A more dramatic comparison than this is Chile and Mexico. In the early 1980s, both of them were big debtors in dollars. The interest rate went way up, and that put them in bad financial shape. The price of their primary exports, oil in the case of Mexico, copper in the case of um, Chile, fell. <coughs> um, Chile reformed their banking system, set up a sound system. Um, with, uh, without, Mexico didn't. They kept channeling their uh, savings to businesses in order to preserve jobs. It seemed to be each job they preserved, they lost two. They should channel the funds to where they are to the most productive investment. Um, they lost a decade and a half of growth. Since about this, this point, they've not been losing, and, and they may have been doing better than this figure indicates. When you open up with NAFTA, you get a bigger variety of products. And this doesn't show up in GDP, the benefits of this. If you're Hexero Lynn, uh, different factor endowments, there's a benefit of trade in terms of welfare, but it doesn't show up in GDP, given the way they measure GDP. <coughs> Tim Keogh was the one that's uh, has done some key work on that. Uh, and the welfare of Mexicans may be higher, but it's just not captured by GDP. Cost of current, huge bailout of lenders to financial intermediaries by taxpayers. This means higher tax rates in the future and depresses the economy now. So the stimulus plan is a depressing plan. Back in the March, <coughs> Of, um, <coughs> that's in 2008, there was that tax rebate. You know, they sent the helicopter around and dropped money on people. <laughs> I had my students say, determine the consequences of this. These are our students. And so they did. And Said, well, depresses the economy. Um, the more recent stimulus plan, I think, was bigger and will just depress it more. A lot of countries are backing off these uh, stimulus plans. <coughs> when I was over in China, I said, don't call it a stimulus plan. You should, countries should make productive investments if the return exceeds the cost. 
and the infrastructure was pretty bad in some of the southern parts of uh, China. And there was a good return on the investment. That was not done to boost the economy. That was done to, well, good investments are good things to do. Um, neither theory, you look for some cases where stimulants have really stimulated the economy. Um, nobody seems to be able to come up with them. Like there's a lot of evidence on the high marginal tax rates depressing the economy. <coughs> I developed a very simple methodology that uses a minimal number of statistics and it's a to estimate marginal effective tax rates. And you also have to correct, if you know the growth model, you also have to correct the savings rate. It's the, it comes from the marginal rate of substitution between consumption and leisure equated to the after tax real wage. And we talk about this production function. Um, but needs to say there's error, it's hard to measure hours. And and even in the U.S., uh, there's been a surprising deviation between the establishment hours and the uh, household hours. One where they knock on doors and ask, how much did you work? And the other, they ask the employers, how many people on your payroll? <coughs> to figure out how many hours the uh, salary people work, they go back to a 1978 survey, which they Well, as you can see, this is a 45 degree line, predicted in action. Um, from this equilibrium relation, and as you can see, the countries, I don't know, I suspect there's a measurement problem with Ireland, so I'd have to dig into that one deeper. The Irish are not lazy. <laughs> I did find some problems with the uh, Iceland statistics. <coughs> UK is right on the line, right on the dot. Good for you people. <laughs> Effective measures against the depression in the US economy. If Obama cut the tax rates, the economy would boom and everybody would be yelling and screaming and wonderful. People are still saying he's wonderful. But they say his policy is And the poor Democratic Party is really getting losing support rapidly. Become more open. Um, Obama never voted for an openness, and now he's recently imposing that tariff on tigers from um, China, which I think is a mistake. <laughs> I think there's enough economists around that says free trade is good that in the press will come up because uh, the economists are pretty uh, both left and right are pretty unified on this one open service here um, there's some disagreement the left tends to don't think uh, margin tax rates are that important uh, They really haven't looked into this very carefully. 
it's been a relatively recent phenomenon that we understood this. I didn't know about this back in 1999. Uh, but then I gave my students an exercise. My undergraduates, figure out which is better. The way to finance this consumption tax or an income tax. They came back and said, oh, you can't do it with an income tax. I said, you must be wrong. They were right. And as soon as I saw that, boom, the life went on. Um, follow productivity policies. I'm a little bit disturbed by the abandonment of uh, cost-benefit analysis. I think that's one of the solid contributions of economics. Um, I get a little bit nervous about some of the people that get appointed to some of the boards. Uh, National Labor Relations Board, for example. Pretty soon we'll see all the graduates, TAs, and uh, unionize. It started to happen, and then they changed the nature of the board back in the, about 2001 and shifted the, and that died. Well, my buddy Larry, uh, misguided advice to Japan, repeatedly said to spend in order to stimulate their economy in the 90s. And Japan did try that experiment a number of times. It didn't work. Geithner was not an economist. He's just part of that uh, Wall Street Washington, Nexus. Uh, I don't trust him. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's, he's Larry Summers. How's uh, him what to say? Uh, puppet. Um, why Japan lost a decade ago? Some blame China. I said it's not China. When the U.S. After the war, Europe started recovering after the war. Kennedy thought, oh, that's going to create massive unemployment in the U.S. and set up Manpower Trading Act plans. It didn't. It benefited from Europe's recovery. When Japan started growing, Western Europe and the U.S. got worried about the Japanese taking over the world. It was good for us. That car's got so much better. <laughs> My wife loves her uh, Japanese language. Um, <coughs> now, we, we found it was just a lack of productivity growth. Why didn't productivity grow in there? It was going along at a, growing at a rapid rate up until about 1991 and then fell. Almost zero. Fumio Hayashi and I conjecture banks subsidizing inefficiencies with the approval of the government. Banks were making loans to businesses so the businesses could pay the interest on their loans. Then they wouldn't have to declare bad debt and then name the banks with seller. In fact, they weren't. <coughs> and there was this subsidizing inefficiency. If you're a really hot hotshot uh, business person coming into an industry more productive and all your competitors get subsidized by the government, you don't make that much. 
What you want is to have people move from where they're less productive to where they're more productive. Denmark has a good flexible labor market system and they're able to, uh, they just make the state of being unemployed very unpleasant. You get paid well, but you have to show up for all these meetings and listen to these bored people. It's worse than going to school. Um, and so they quickly get jobs elsewhere where they're more productive. And that enhances Denmark's productivity. Well, I think there was a shift in opinion in uh, Canada, in uh, Japan, under Prime Minister Koizumi. He <coughs> buying into our productivity story a little bit. I thought he was because the uh, cabinet research office invited me to talk, and they knew what I was going to say. Uh, very predictable. Uh, they were doing that because I think they wanted to have support for the Prime Minister, and that's the way that they get support. He also got this guy, Takana, uh, the head of financial service, and they institute banking reforms, wrote off bad loans, refinanced insolvent banks, required honest accounting, or meeting capital requirements. Productivity growth rebounded. There's no helicopter drops of money, no big increase in spending, no Chinese collapse. We're just making the banking system sound. He also cut some other subsidies <coughs> to inefficient businesses. As you can see, the US has sort of been going along at about 100. The EU has been going along about 70. Um, Japan lost significant grounds. The EU 15 <coughs> welfare is higher than Japan's. Japan is low because their productivity is low. EU 15 is low don't work much. <coughs> productivity is the same as the US, but they get more <coughs> non-market time. And the value of this non-market time is not zero. It's about half of what the value of the goods that could be produced if you have a 50% tax rate. So in terms of welfare, EU 15 is about 80, in lifetime consumption equivalent, it's about 85% of the US. Japan's down there around 74% of the US. Well, financial crisis, a lot of entertainment. Um, my I have a diversified portfolio of my retirement accounts, so, and they own bank stocks. And the value of those bank stocks were way down. So, so there's been a lot of recovery. Um, Friedman and others earlier, Irving Fisher, for example, argued for 100% reserve banking with interest on reserves. <coughs> this is for commercial banks. Justification was stability. You can't have bank runs. It's, what does a bank do when they take deposits? They just deposit it in, at the Federal Reserve Bank or the Bank of England um, <coughs> with Mervyn King. Um, I argued for a Friedman system for the commercial banking system. And 
hand had ban on financial remediation with tools like Bear Stone, Lehman Brothers, and long-term capital management. The gamblers. I know if you get highly levered, you can make a lot of money or lose a lot. And then there's regulation. Just gives me, they always try and not control things. That fostering home ownership. Fannie Mae and Fannie Mac with their guaranteed five, they pretty much five trillion dollars of mortgages. Um, they wanted to increase home ownership. Earlier there was a problem with the savings and loan industry. That went bankrupt in 1989. And the taxpayers ended up bailing it out to the tune of 2% of GDP. Which is costly to collect. FHA is Federal Home Administration. Uh, I know, I try to think, do we need this financial intermediation? Somebody's borrowing a lot and lending a lot? With limited liability, where are the gains? There used to be gains when we had commodity money. Why would banks do that? You could have more money with the same amount of gold. And it's very expensive to dig gold out of the ground. But once we figured out there's something called fiat money, paper money, that's not a consideration. I was not excited about bailing out Goldman Sachs, AIG, and Deutsche Bank. Um, currently, about 80% is financed by, of investments financed by owner's equity, your house, your equity part, and mutual lending. A lot of the retirement accounts hold these mortgages and are lending to you. Another 20% is financed by intermediated I'll call it bank lending. The part currently financed by bank lending would have to be financed other ways with this 100% reserve system. By the way, people are not buying on as my 100% reserve requirement. I think they're just blind, but uh, we're in the company with Milton Friedman and Bernie uh, Fisher, that's a pretty good company. Yeah. It's a, like a Glass-Steagall act, but no way to get around it. Uh, because those businesses, are, our bankers are sharp. They can figure out, in the new technology, they can sweep things around and, and I don't know all the things they do. I think two times a month, I've heard my money in my Wells Fargo checking account get swept, just to lower reserve requirements. Back when tax rates in Western Europe were 40%, same as in the US, Europeans worked the same as as the Americans, early 70s. <coughs> I fear the danger will be that the US will increase its tax rate. Uh, two, many of you people will be married to other professionals. You have two professionals together in the US <coughs> There's a big penalty on being married when it comes to taxes, if you have two workers. 
That's true at both ends, the high end and the low end. It really discourages or encourages living in sin. Uh, I proposed to my wife in the 90s to save 15,000 a year if we, you know, didn't live in the same way we had, but uh, she was she was a psychologist, psychologist and had some pretty good income. Um, but she said no, so. <laughs> <laughs> but at the bottom end, they have this earned income tax credit. Um, and if you get married, you pay a lot more. Two thirds <coughs> of people get married and both work, you pay a lot more taxes. By the way, raising tax rates doesn't increase revenue. In countries with really high tax rates, it will decrease. So France, Italy, Germany, and Spain. Back in 1980, the supply side, I thought were a little bit crazy, Arthur Laughlin Company. They called it voodoo economics. Um, I didn't know, but it's so the willingness to substitute came out of the business cycle, come out of the uh, this tax stuff later. Suggested they probably did have a point. Revenue was maximized at 52% tax rates. Linda Tsar and Mendoza and uh, I forget the third author came up with the same number. Of course, if you increase tax rates, you're getting about 40%, it starts getting flat. Um, but GDP falls. This is all on a capital per person basis. Well, I think I've said this before, but I'll give you a little bit of time to read. <laughs> now for the wider gains and losses. We do things in terms of lifetime consumption equivalents. By what percent would you have to increase consumption now and in the future, conditional upon all the events? Um, be indifferent with the change. Current U.S. is 40%. If France were to cut their to the U.S. system, they'd get the same revenue. Their GDP and welfare would go way up. Or consumption. Tax rates, openness, and productivity. I think this openness enhances productivity. I, the problem is not lack of borrowing. Right now, banks are just overwhelmed with uh, excess reserves. The balance sheet of the Fed is a huge amount. It just went from one trillion to two trillion on each side. They're going to increase it more. They're trying to subsidize uh, foster home ownership. <coughs> makes sense to me. One thing Herbert Hoover did, he liked to run things from the White House. He called the people together. Ford, Henry Ford, and the Sloan family and the like, and said, oh, you got to, he liked wages high in that industry. And keep those wages up. Of course, employment fell in those industries. People left the industrial sector and went back to the uh, rural sector, back to the farming. Um, it was 
some reforms are being made with, I thought they were a little bit slow in this uh, letter to GM and Chrysler <coughs> go bankrupt. <coughs> what about, are we in for another great depression? The current plan policies in the U.S. resemble those followed in the 1930s. I mentioned anti-immigration, a little bit of anti-globalization. Hopefully there will not be a Holly Smooth tariff pass. No <coughs> tax increase. Hoover was a stimulus guy. He increased tax rates and government spending a lot. Um, I mentioned pro-White House managing in pro-carbonization businesses. Who was an engineer, he likes things and organized. He doesn't believe in that invisible hand. But I expect not. Things were going pretty well for the U.S. through the second quarter of 2008. Rapid productivity growth continues. And I see the economists are not worthless people. I think we'll constrain the there is a lot of agreement, and when it gets to the agreement, um, <coughs> the press starts uh, joining in. And, but I do fear a lost decade of growth. What about the UK? Uh, first thing, I think Germany just had a recent election and seems to be moving is the most likely to cut tax rates and then reform labor market policies. And if so, it will grow rapidly. And that would be good for Germany and good for its neighbors. The UK will probably reform in time and healthy growth will resume. Um, there's been some backing off the stimulus plan and that's good. So now I'm ready to uh, answer questions and welcome them. Okay, um. Thank you for that wonderful talk. Um, we will now be taking questions from the floor. I think if we take two or three questions, and the professor can still will answer them. How do you sit? Okay, so one there, one there, uh, one there. So, um, Professor Prescott, my question is, uh, you said that the financial intermediary function of the banking sector should be performed by 100% reserve banks, but how does that work? Because, uh, Conventional knowledge is uh, the banks take the deposit in, uh, then part of it out, that's the partial fractional reserve banking system. If you take 100% of the deposit in, then, then nothing out, or do you just lend out the interest, then how does that function? I'm just quite puzzling. Um, it used to be that financial insurance companies were mostly mutual. They're sharing their inputs. People, the there's not the borrowing and lending. Um, or is it the um, 
some of the investments made by the insurance companies don't do well, then the people who have insurance policies will lose. My household, my house and car and liability insurance company, it's a mutual insurance company. Um, they always charge you a lot, a little bit more, and then you get a big dividend at the end of the year that's pretty predictable. Um, normally, with life insurance, what do they do? They say, we'll guarantee this rate. Um, but you should expect to get this higher rate. Effectively, you're, you're sort of lending, you're sharing in that risk. It's a sharing arrangement. Um, there's a lot of mutual banks, credit unions too. Um, they're not like uh, Lehman Brothers. Um, now, if, what about these, what are these bankers who evaluate loans and say, should we give to this, lend money to this small business or not? A bunch of us put together our money for our retirement and we hire some of those people to do that business for us. Because uh, we don't, and they, and we share in the, uh, how well that does. If it does well, then it becomes the, in the mutual category. Well, the corporations are mutual, cooperative arrangements. Um, sharing. So I guess the magic word is sharing. Um, you talked extensively about the, the internal policies, but when we were talking about the importance of global cooperation, the G20 playing more important role nowadays than G7. Is it the, well you talked about this uselessness of stimulus package, so the arguments of global cooperation is completely useless, or does that help? <coughs> Multinationals are a great social invention. They have a lot of technology and know-how. They can set up operations in other countries. When they set up operations in those countries, they get to use the know-how of those firms. And this enhances the productivity and living standards where they make this investment, this foreign direct investment. Um, and of course, the owners of this technology capital <coughs> get some returns on their rent. I saw some Starbucks down the street. <laughs> the American fast food, food, but also the software. Um, IBM, the consulting. Um, if you look at the US corporations, these are the ones that Schedule C, the ones that are uh, Schedule S are like sole proprietors. Uh, with limited liability. But the Schedule C, they produce half the output of the U.S. Uh, these Schedule C, 35% of their profits come from their wholly owned foreign subsidiaries. And if you look at the, according to the
statistics produced by the Bureau of Economic Analysis, the U.S. Statistical Agency. Um, there's some problems of measurement of the unmeasured investment that Ellen McGrath and I have looked into intensely. <coughs> I said 20, 35% of their profits, how much of their assets are abroad? 10% of their assets are abroad. 10% of their assets generating 35% of their profits? No. <laughs> Some of this is just rents where U.S. is getting on their past investments in intangibles. You go into an area, you have to do some advertising, you have to train your workforce, you have to specialize your accounting systems to local countries. McGrath and I stayed within the standard, more neoclassical structure with constant returns to scale, and not the monopolistic competition, which is of Paul Romer, uh, which is the competing one. <coughs> we'll, which it was the dominating one. It may continue to be, it may not. It, the preliminary evidence is looking good for this technology capital. The UK has a certain amount of locations, a limited number. That means Walmart can only set up one stuff. If you go to any metropolitan area in the US, you have the same collection of uh, stores. Uh, you can't build 100 stores, Walmarts in the same area. Uh, so there's limited, so our locations are related to the size of the population, proportional, in our theory. Um, now these multinationals, you know, the foreigners can uh, benefit from the know-how of uh, these companies. But there's a lot of multinationals in the U.S. Automobile, what did Toyota do back in 1985? Well, they put a Toyota factory in Kentucky. That's that's where the hillbillies live. Some of those Scottish hillbillies. Uh, they're not. It's not the industrial heartland. Now, why do they do that? Voluntary quotas. It seems contradictory. Um, to get around that, and then they had to do the higher end. They made small cars, uh, but then they started doing the bigger cars in 1995. Toyota got into the EU by locating its plant in Wales in 1990. Um, back then, Europe was supposedly the EU at free trade, but to get a car, Toyota, into the EU, had to come in through the port of Marseilles. And they had one inspector who could inspect one car a day. So there weren't very many Toyotas in France. Or go to Norway, which was not an EU country, half the cars were Japanese. Uh, they were not subject to these barriers. Um, but the more back and forth there is, I think you gotta be, I tell countries, any country that became integrated with the advanced industrial countries, that trade with them, industrial goods, and export and import both, gets rich. Uh, I know of no exception. 
There's about 32 rich countries now. That's half the U.S. level. Um, we're five-sevenths of the EU 15 level. And there's a bunch of countries about ready to join that club. The Czech Republic, Slovak, um, oh, what's another one? It's uh, Chile. Um, and it won't be long before Poland comes in there, too. There's a rapid catch-up occurring in uh, once in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, the set of riches, some of the countries like Malaysia is doing pretty well. And I think we'll do better. The Prime Minister seems to be a sensible guy. He has difficult political problems with the ethnic groups. You can't offend that. About two-thirds are Malaysians, one-third are, uh, one-sixth are Chinese, one-sixth are Indian. And they have to worry about uh, equity between the various ethnic groups. So these, I tell these countries, when I go to China, I say, set up your multinationals and do it broad. What did Mexico do? They were, in the mid-90s, they were shipping cement to the U.S. They said, you're dumping cement. You're selling below the price you charge in Mexico. <coughs> um, but they weren't dumping. Uh, they were making a profit on this uh, thing. So what they do? Well, once they, the threats came in and were coming, they bought up some Australian cement companies. And then they started producing like mad in the U.S. using their better technology. And what did they do? They uh, Price got cheaper in the U.S., stayed low in the U.S., but it was higher in Mexico. The Russians wanted to take advantage of that, so they sent their ships with cement on over to Mexico. The Mexicans said, no, we've got to protect CMEX. Cement, Mexico. So you need that, that competition is good in, uh, in some of these formal integrated, provided they don't get too centralized. I think the UK should maintain its independence to set its own tax policies, and but be integrated with uh, Europe in terms of trade. And also integrated. When I draw, draw a picture, I don't put uh, the UK as part of uh, Europe. I put it in the middle of it. <laughs> It's sort of halfway between. Okay, uh, one question for that. Um, yeah, um, Dr. Prescott, yeah, I enjoyed the discussion and the lecture. I, you spoke extensively about Obama administrative uh, policy positions and how that would affect the economy. Um, and, and briefly about the NLRB and how you know the administration of the NLRB is changing from three decades of Chamber of Commerce frontmen to pro-labor uh, people the way it was you know, essentially written when it was written in the 1940s and under the Smith books, or under the Wagner Act. So I was wondering, uh, given the pro-labor position, pro-organized labor position, the Obama administration and left economists like Krugman taking pro-car check neutrality and employee free choice act positions as stimulants to the economy, uh, when in your discussions with Bernanke and others in the Obama administration, what position do you take generally when it comes to freedom of association? largely defined as organized labor. Um, except in the uh, public sector, 
unions are dead in the U.S. Um, they have uh, long some some, some industries had some big promises. Uh, some the industry and the unions have made some promises, and when they go bankrupt, the taxpayers bail them out. And in the auto steel went bankrupt. Uh, all those industries. Now, the NLRB was uh, the unionization of the uh, graduate students, but that's under the uh, late Clinton administration. That, that was actually a Supreme Court decision from 2004. It wasn't an NLRB decision. It was private sector unionization, not public sector unionization. Unionization among graduate students has actually increased in the last decade. But. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, clearing up on the facts more precisely or even more about that. Um, the uh, NYU did get, they, they lost some of their, they started losing their, the elections. They won their election, but it was contested to Supreme Court. Oh, yeah, that was done, oh, that was the NYU one? NYU, yeah. yeah. Um, and then the Supreme Court ruled? In 2004, yeah. But that was private sector, not public sector unions. They said it was legal to do that, right? Right. It wasn't It wasn't necessarily, they weren't defined as employees. They were defined as teachers. Oh, as or assistant teachers. Yeah, I tend to think of my uh, <laughs> <laughs> students are the slaves. <laughs> no, they're the colleagues. They're the people. It's a joint effort. They're not a... Uh, employees, um, and I think it's all. <coughs> to make that, there are some unionized universities in the United States and some in Canada as well. Rutgers is unionized. That's a big state university of New Jersey. Um, that complicates you want the flexibility. Um, it's, um, so if you look at the history of unions, uh, Roosevelt shifted in 39, and he had that big uh, recession in, or shock B in 37. Uh, during World War II, there was acts of proposed in uh, laws proposed in Congress to make uh, strikes a capital offense. Uh, <coughs> Truman was very anti-union. Uh, and John L. Lewis put the miners on, uh, coal miners on strike. He <coughs> nationalized the, that. He tried to do the same things with the uh, longshoremen, but uh, Got nowhere. Longshore people were too uh, powerful. The uh, unions in uh, New Zealand and Australia said they would not unload American ships. Uh, so he backed off that. There were, there were some, um, it's amazing what happened because the unions, the longshoremen brag about when they got the uh, monopoly in the West on the ports. This is on the website. Productivity, they said, look, we increased jobs. Productivity got cut in half. 
Um, the Teamsters and the Longshoremen don't like each other. Uh, in LA, they make the poor, Longshoremen get paid a huge amount, and they only work during selected hours. You want to have those truckers picking up the stuff and driving out on the highways at nighttime when there's no traffic. As, but they have to wait there for a day or something uh, and waste a lot of resources on this. So, there were some reforms, by the way, in the Longshoremen about five years ago. Um, in some of the, maybe after 30 or 40 years, they maybe actually hired the new one. New people like to fly on that. It was openings. Kathy, we've got time for one more question. Hi. Hi. Um, you mentioned a couple of times during uh, the lecture some of the pits by using GDP as a measure, and you mentioned product breaks and like different pitfalls. Do you think that there would be any uh, measure used and focusing on, on GDP growth? Uh, I mean, there's been uh, some research recently on uh, including other factors, and uh, you think it's irrelevant to really focus on GDP growth, not the main measure? I always count, count the value of leisure, non-market time. We have a lot of good uses of that. Uh, and we can see what people choose there and see how much they value that on market. They do these time studies, the Germans. Their hours worked in the market <coughs> per hour is low relative to the U.S. Then they put these little beepers on people and uh, they say, what are you doing now? Is it so they can get measures of home production work. And the Germans work as much as the Americans uh, when you add home plus market. Um, with regard to accounting systems, I believe we should uh, stick with the uh, an accounting system that measures how well the business sector is performing. If we set up good regulatory, how much output per unit input? Um, and that's GDP. I would use, be consistent in using uh, producer prices there. We don't for consumption. And then I'd like to have an accounting system for the uh, household system to get, that takes into consideration the value of uh, home production and uh, the value of leisure, uh, and also a, an accounting system for the government to see how well they're performing. Um, now, you say one number like GDP is not a great way to do it. Agreed. <laughs> but if, we're, if productivity goes to heck in that sector and uh, people are getting that sector being messed up because of carbonization and distorted prices. Um, that's a signal that we've got to, that government has ought to change the rules to improve them for that sector. Okay, um, 
We've run out of time, unfortunately. Um, before we thank uh, Professor Prescott for his lecture, I'd just like to get him with a small token of green picture. You've uh, got your LSU teddy bear. <laughs> <laughs>